Uh, so I was a little surprised that I guess I, uh, I wasn't expecting that you couldn't get enough of hell. So uh, when I asked uh, for questions last week, I guess I had heard that there were questions that were coming around, but people said they had questions, but they didn't tell me what any of them were. Um, so you did answer. And uh, I asked for questions and, uh, that you want answered, and you, you gave me questions that you want answered. We're looking for that. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. I so honestly appreciate hearing your questions, and I will do my best today um, and on other days to answer things that are brought to me. Uh, you're always welcome to ask. Please don't wait for a special invitation to ask questions. We are here to learn and to grow, and we have to ask questions to do that. So who, who of us, including me, knows all that there is to know? We can honestly delight in our curious minds, and we can eagerly seek truth and understanding, and it is a lifelong pursuit. You don't age out. We are disciples. We are students. We are in earnest pursuit of Jesus, and so we take next steps. We take next steps to intentionally move in His direction. That's what we do, and we try to do that on an ongoing basis. So thanks to you, question askers, for taking some quality next steps and ben, uh, blessing us all in that. Now, all that being said, you kind of ruined my week, all right? I, I had a groove going, right? And, and then I was forced to chain things around and then resort. Because of you, I've changed things around. I, I saw the questions, and I tried to group things together. And in doing that, of course, I saw some underlying issues as well. And so, not only am I changing this week and adding in an extra episode of hell, I'm also reworking my whole New Year plan for 2023 to look at a very related topic and to answer some more questions. So as of now, January will be focused on heaven and who goes there. Then February will be our annual focus on outflow, what does mission look like in the real world. We have some guest speakers coming in um, who live in the real world. And we say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of the overflow of the heart, the life is lived on mission. So why do people engage? And, and, and what, what does that engagement look like for different people? And what, that, what might that look like for me? Then March, we will turn our eyes and fix our gaze on heaven once again. Okay? A little hell, then we'll get to heaven. It's coming. So some of the questions um, get answered today, uh, not all of them. Then there's a bigger picture because a lot of them related to heaven. So we're going to go to heaven in the new year, finish off some of those other big questions. So if your question doesn't get answered today, hopefully it gets answered as we go forward. Okay. Uh, none of these topical kind of discussions can happen without overlapping into other topics, other categories. And all of our uh, doctrinal studies build on and support each other. There are no kind of standalone doctrines. They all have uh, a web of interaction in them. We share an understanding, and out of that understanding, the tree of knowledge grows. So, that's my introduction. That's my explanation. That's what's happening. So, the questions that came in, they kind of nibble around uh, the edges on a number of related topics. So, instead of uh, reading out a question and then trying to answer that question, I'm going to try to piece together um, those questions, put a, make it part of a larger story that should answer most of those kind of questions and show how they are linked together, okay? So, uh, it's history today. And when I say it's history today, you say what? 
Woohoo! Right? We're going to do some history today. Yeah. All right. There's a word that uh, arose from a number of different people, a number of different questions uh, surrounding this kind of stuff. Can you guess what that word is? Anyone want to take a stab at it? Purgatory. Yeah, that's the big one right there. And thanks for asking so many questions about it because I intentionally avoided it. Uh, but, but it's good because the concept, or at least the word, is generally well known, but also not necessarily properly understood. Okay? And it, there's a, a lot of significance in what happens here. So part of the reason for me not wanting to muddy the waters around hell with a conversation about purgatory, even though they seem to be kind of linked, is that purgatory is not one of my beliefs and not one of the beliefs of our family of churches either. So in saying that, I don't want to foment disunity. I am not here to point the finger and accuse, but I will seek to explain, although incompletely I am sure, what's up with that. So just like previously, if you can remember, I explained to you different views on baptism, different views on communion, and then I gave you my understanding so that we could understand each other better. That's what I want to do today. So, purgatory. The word, uh, probably familiar for most, the meaning, not necessarily so. Purgatory means many things, especially when you attach a date to the question. What did purgatory mean in the 1100s? And what does purgatory mean now? Once the concept came into existence, it began to grow. So a general view currently uh, is the process of purgatory is the final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. All right? So the word purgatory in Latin, that would be purgatorium, means a place of cleansing. That comes from the Latin verb. I don't normally do grammar, but the verb sense is important. That's pergo, to clean or to cleanse. It only began to appear about 1160 to 1180 as a noun, giving rise to the idea that purgatory could be a place. That was the birth of purgatory. The Roman Catholic tradition of purgatory as a transitional condition has a history that dates way way back, even before Jesus, okay, to the worldwide practice of caring for the dead and praying for the dead. Also in there is the belief that prayer for the dead helped. It contributed to their afterlife purification. But purgatory, or the idea of purgatory, or the idea of providing help to the dead that's not owned by Roman Catholics alone. The same practice appears in other traditions, such as in medieval Chinese Buddhist practice, where they make offerings for the dead on behalf of the dead who are said to face numerous trials. We have to help them. So some version of these concepts are also found in some strains of Judaism, in Islam, in Indian religions, in Zoroastrianism, and in the Eastern Aramaic Mandaism. Thank you, Graham, for all those words. I know you appreciate it. The word purgatory has come to refer to a wide range of historical and modern conceptions of post-mortem or after-death suffering, but short of and different from everlasting damnation. 
English speakers, if you're part of the culture, you've learned how to use this word in a non-specific sense to mean any place or any condition of suffering or torment, especially one that is temporary. We've turned it into a cultural idiom, right? Oh, man, how long is this going to last? I feel like we're just hanging in purgatory here. Or, oh, you must have offended someone up on the 77th floor because that promotion just ain't coming. You're stuck in career advancement purgatory. The con, um, the conception of uh, purgatory uh, as a physical place uh, came into existence not, not in the very beginning of the idea, but it came in through the, in the Western Europe towards about the end of the 12th century. I promised you history. Here we go. It's, time for, it's, a, it's, it's a place for you to go for a time for purification, a place you go for a time to be purified, and as time went by, fire got added. Because if you're going to tell a story, you might as well add some fire. Over the centuries, theologians, others have developed theories, and they imagine descriptions, and they compose legends, and all of that has contributed to the formation of a popular idea of purgatory, which happens to be much more detailed and elaborate than the quite minimal elements that have been officially declared to be part of the authentic teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. People blew it up. That's what happens. More recently, really recently, the concept has evolved with the popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI declaring that the term purgatory does not indicate a place, but a condition of existence. So we're waiting for that update to get transferred down from the Vatican into the popular culture because it ain't here yet. But where did it come from, you may ask? You may ask, where did it come from? <laughs> Great question. I'm really glad that you asked that. Uh, the, the Catholic Church found specific Old Testament support for afterlife purification in 2 Maccabees 12, and that's where some more of the problem pops up. Maccabees is part of the Catholic biblical canon, but regarded as apocryphal by Protestants. So yeah, not only history, it's Lingo Sunday. Get out your dictionaries, kids, because the lingo's going to start flying now. Canon. Canon means the official, recognized, the approved, voted on uh, books of the Bible as chosen by church councils. Roman Catholics have added the Apocrypha to the canon and into their published Bibles. So if you ever have one, you'll notice that there's a whole section that appears there. That means that when they said, we found support for the belief in aiding the dead in their purification within the Old Testament, they're talking about a book that the rest of Christianity does not recognize as canon. Protestants see Maccabees as an apocryphal reference. One more, what does apocryphal mean? Well, it's a story or it's a statement of doubtful authenticity, although it's been widely circulated as being true. That definition also partially comes from the way that we view the Apocrypha, which is where it comes from, right? Something coming from the Apocrypha is apocryphal. So what's the Apocrypha? It's a Greek word, and that means hidden, or it means secret, but it's the name that's given to a collection of ancient manuscripts. That's how we're using it right now, like 15 of them, 
okay? And these manuscripts or these books were originally not to be made available to the general public. They were not officially included in the canon because they were not considered Scripture. They are not secret. They are just not Scripture. There are a collection of uh, books written in the four centuries, okay, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, these books were written. So we call it intertestamental literature because it was written in between the two testaments. <coughs> Protestants don't consider it to be Scripture, but we do see it as being very helpful historically. Excuse me, dry throat. It is helpful stuff. It is clearly historical writing, and that historical writing helps us to gain a fuller understanding of first, first century Judaism, including the rising messianic fervor that led in part to the crucifixion of Jesus. So they were amped up about Messiah and His coming partially because of this literature. And that fits right into our timeline today for the start of Advent, the celebration in waiting and in hope, longing for the coming of Messiah. Roman Catholics consider 12 of the 15 books to be canonical. That means that they have been seen to be authoritative and considered to be part of the official Bible. Maybe you've heard of some of these books. First and Second Esdras, First and Second Maccabees, Baruch, Bell and the Dragon, the Book of Judith, the Prayer of Manasseh, the History of Susanna, and the Book of Tobit. They were not considered part of the Jewish canon at the time of Christ. They did not appear attached to other scriptural books until the fourth century. They had already been set aside centuries before, valid, useful, not Scripture. So in 1412, and you all know what happened in 1412, that's when the chapters and verses were added into Scripture. The Apocrypha was only included in that as a section for historical reference. Also see, the key verses that led to the concept of purgatory are found in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, starting at verse 43. Let's uh, take a look at those. And making a gathering... He said, this is Judas, uh, talking about Judas Maccabees, who's a big guy in intertestamental times. Really interesting stuff in here as well, history, and when the Greeks came, Judas Maccabees was a big, important guy. Okay, so we're talking about Judas Maccabees. Uh, making a gathering, he sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem to sa uh, for sacrifice, to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. Verse 44, for if they had not hoped that they that, they that were slain would, should rise again, it would have seemed superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. 45, and because he considered that they who had fallen asleep with godliness had great grace laid up for them. That's the basis out of which purgatory grew. History moves forward, okay? Now, based on the belief of purgatory, another new doctrine began to emerge. The authority structure of the Roman Catholic Church sees 
church tradition, the popes and bishops, and Scripture all as authoritative sources for truth and the dispensing of grace, not just Jesus and Scripture. Now that it's established that people are waiting in purgatory until they're purified, and it's established that the living can support them and indeed speed them on their way, it grows. The idea of purgatory grows. <coughs> it grows to include another term, and that another term becomes another new doctrine. That word is indulgences. Why waste time praying for the dead in purgatory when you can get the official church authorities to simply wave these trapped souls on their way with an indulgence, a paper that is signed by a church official that you can get and have. Once you have it, your loved one moves along. These indulgences became available through sale. You had to buy them. Coincidentally, they went on sale right when some of the big new cathedrals were being funded. And more publicly still, indulgences became a key way for funding and motivating volunteers for the Crusades. The Crusades were conducted with the organization of and the blessing by the Roman Catholic Church. All participants in the Crusades were granted papal indulgences, not ones that came from local sources of authority, but from the Pope himself. Everyone who went and volunteered on a crusade were given spiritual and legal protection for any and all unholy, illegal, and sinful acts while on crusade. Any and all. Granted in advance. Good in this life and the next. Johann Tetzel, a Dominican preacher, he was accused of selling indulgences somewhere in the years between 1465 and 1519. He became known for this very famous phrase. If you've ever looked into this, you've probably heard this phrase, and it summarizes the whole doctrine really, really quickly. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Really convenient. Clink, grandma's free. Very controversial. So controversial that on October 31st, 1517, all those Protestants out there, your ears go up for that one, Martin Luther posts his 95 theses his list on the Wittenberg church door of his issues. These are 95 things that we need to answer for. We need to reevaluate. We need to look at these things. These are problems, 95 of them. And this came after long participation of the Roman Catholic Church in the blended teachings of purgatory and indulgences. This then becomes the start of the Protestant Reformation. Purgatory is not hell. But the belief in it certainly has led to some hellish conditions on earth. 
And that happens with many things when people become overly indulgent in them. All right. Now, changing questions, changing gears, changing tone. Sadly, we are in the season right now of one of the most insipid and misleading beliefs, and it's heavily perpetuated. It gets in. It's like an earworm. It has been placed throughout our culture, um, but can be seen so clearly in this well-known song. Perhaps you've heard it. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So you better be good, for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And somehow through that song, our ideas and our understandings get linked. God and Santa, they're seen to be the same. Be good. Be good enough. Because I'm watching, and I'm, and I'm counting, and I'm looking. I'm looking for your mistakes. Just how much good do you need to do to keep yourself out of hell and get yourself into heaven? Well, I guess the answer is more. That's how much. You, you need to be more good than you are. Is it possible to be good enough? How much is good enough? How would I know? What does that good look like? This is a bigger question and, and will lend itself nicely to a discussion about heaven. So come back in January, okay? Come back in the new year to hear about heaven and who's going to heaven. That leads us to a big question for us today. So you had some for me. This is a question for you. Thy will and trust or my will and direct? Will it be, oh, come on, I'll be good, I'll be good, please don't be mean to me. Will we go forward? with our emphasis placed on threats of suffering or promises of love? Which do you believe is the way God approaches us? Great work, God. Really nice job. Jesus is great. Thanks. I see what you're planning here. Heaven sounds great. Really looking forward to it. However, I've got some notes. Uh, good start, God. Uh, but let me just point out something, uh, something that you probably didn't consider. I know you're busy. You didn't consider this. You got a lot on your mind. Actually, do you know what I would prefer, God? Like, here, here's how, if I was running the universe, this is what I would do. And honestly, how often do we feel that we can see what God cannot? Why is it that we sense we see a hole in God's plan? He just missed it. Trust or give him pointers. Good. What, I mean, what, what is good? Who, who is good? No one is good enough. Do you want some good news? That's what you came here for? The gospel. The good news is that you are not good enough. Put your mind at ease. You don't have to live your whole life trying to be good enough and wondering, but never knowing if you kept all the right rules to the right degree at the right time in the right way to the right people. 
Be free. Live a life characterized by love and trust in God. Put your trust in Him. We have been offered a gift, a, a great idea in, the, in this season to think of a gift. The Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of letters to churches, and he wrote a letter to the church in Rome, and he used that letter as a description to say, you've never met me, I'm coming, I think Rome's a pretty big deal and I want to be there too, I want to help with what you're doing, love what you guys have started, you don't know me, so let me introduce myself and tell you basically everything that I believe and that I want to teach. That's the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, Paul says this in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I've always found it fascinating that the 23, and I know verses, they don't, like the verse numbers, they're, they're, not, um, they're not the truth, they're just the way it worked out, but it's fun that this 23 worked out with that other 23 that's really important, right? Whatever that one is. For the wages of sin is death. So, when you go and you get a job, and, and uh, many of you have salaries, so you don't think of them as wages anymore, but wages is still salary. Wages is when you, you get what you earn. That's what they agree to pay you. So, when I do my work, you give me my wages. The wages of sin. So, when I do sin, what I have earned, what, what I have um, got value, of, the value that it transferred to me, the wages of sin is death. So when I work really hard and I do my sin and I get paid for my sin, the, the, the wage that I get is called death. That's what I earn. The wages of sin is death. But the gift, something that I didn't earn, something that I don't deserve, something that was a surprise to me even, but the gift not that I've earned, but the, but the gift from God, God, the creator of the universe, the, the one who set it all in motion, the one who has the power, the gift of God, the thing that I get from God that I don't deserve, the surprise that I get from God is eternal life. When I work really hard doing what I do, I earn my wages and their death. But I have a gift being offered to me that I didn't deserve, that I didn't earn, and it's from God, and He offers eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do I know? How do I know if I'll be good enough? How do I know that my good will be enough to overshadow my bad? Does it matter that my good overshadows my bad? Can my good overshadow my bad? And the gift that we have been given, we have Jesus, His own righteousness. Good people, good people, don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Sinful people who have trusted in Jesus and are now wrapped in His goodness, clothed in His righteousness. That gift is offered to you. It's offered to you. It's offered to anyone. Regardless of what you have done, 
regardless of how you have worked hard at your sin and deserve death, regardless of what you have done, this gift is being offered to you. So clearly being offered to you that He, in fact, is calling you by name. Come. Father, as we put our minds our hearts and our eyes on You. As we weigh whether or not this gift seems like something that is worth having, would You speak to us? There's all kinds of confusion inside where we are. we got, we got things raging inside that argue one way or the other. But You have a gift that's put out in front of us. And You have the power to make that gift effective in our world, in this time, in this season, in this world, and in the next. Help us to see what you have given as a gift. Trust in you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to put our full weight of expectation on you. And then to learn as you speak that you are one that we can trust. Use this next song to help us to think this through. For some of us to declare what is true in our lives. For others of us to consider what might be true in our lives. Amen.